You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Stevo Pandarovsky, the President of the Republic of North Macedonia. Political Periscope Gościem Radia Wnet jest prezydent Macedonii Północnej, Stevo Pendarowski. Good morning, Mr. President. Good morning. Recently, on 13th of September, nine presidents signed a statement supporting Ukraine and supporting its joining of NATO. When will Ukraine join NATO? What do you think? It seems to me that it is... Uh that it was on our part at least a symbolic political move in order to show to the Ukrainians that even in these the most difficult times in their recent history at least, we are with them. Although you know that for joining the NATO alliance there are a set of preconditions and all of them should be fulfilled, we know something about it because we have been invited to become the candidate country for the membership in 1999 and then Washington DC summit and uh, Almost two decades later, we became a full-fledged member. So that's a long road, and not only military reforms are needed, but what was the, needed the most in this period of the time was that dozens of countries uh, from Europe to show solidarity with Ukrainian people, with their bravery and with their right choice to defend their country, and finally to get rid of the of the Russian occupiers. You said it was political statement. In what ways, other than political, does Macedonia support Ukraine? No, North Macedonia is a small country. We have 1.8 million people. Our military budget budget is non-comparable with the Polish one, for example. We would like to speak about even bigger countries within the NATO alliance. Our latest military budget is approximately 171 million euros. But from the very beginning, since 24th of February, we are supporting our Ukrainian friends. Ukrainian army, Ukrainian politics, in whatever way we we may. Uh, we're speaking, uh, starting from the diplomatic means to the to sending to them everything they need to to fight more successfully against Russians, including the hard military hardware. Are there any Ukrainian refugees in Macedonia, northern Macedonia? The latest number I have checked checked this morning with the with the domestic authorities are not not too many. Then the numbers are between one, 120, 1,400, and all of them are situated, located in the families, because we have a certain number of the so-called mixed marriages. We are obviously not on the, in the first line of, we are not a direct neighbor of Ukraine, and obviously the, the many other countries, including Poland in the first place there, they have to cope with the millions of refugees on their territory. But whatever they need, I mean, refugees from Ukraine on the Macedonian soil, they, everything, everything they need, they're getting that. From taking the school, the kids into schools, med- medical uh, care uh, and, and um, humanitarian help, whatever they need, we are, we are here for them. And so we, they are treated as, as other Macedonian citizens as well. Macedonian government knew you are supporting Ukraine. But what about the people? What's the attitude? Is it clear for everyone that Russia is aggressor and is responsible for this war? 
I can tell you honestly that at the very beginning of the inter- of the of that war in in Ukraine, uh, people are speaking about all citizens of Macedonia have been uh, split, uh, roughly speaking, on half. One half believes the Russian motives, the other not. And why was that at that period of the time? Because because of the Russian propaganda. We are the subject of the Russian propaganda, especially that fake news and everything which goes with that, hybrid threats and uh, everything else, Since, especially since 2018, when we have, we have organized a referendum for changing our name in order to enter NATO, the NATO alliance. So many of our people are, have not been aware about the full picture about all the information connected to, to that war of aggression on the part of Russia. But I saw the latest two polling in the past two, three weeks, uh, and they show that uh, at least two thirds of, of citizens of Macedonia are quite clear that it is a Russian aggression and Ukrainian cause is the right one to defend their country because it's certainly not, it's certainly against all the principles of international law to, to occupy country, a member, sovereign country, a member of the United Nations. So the trends are positive and we are going more and more in, in, in a good direction. I wouldn't like to, to pay too much respect to the politicians, to my fellow colleagues, but we have done something in this regard as well because we have been on a daily basis trying to persuade the people that that's not acceptable, simply like that. In 21st century, to attack the other country just because some dictator there in Kremlin would like to do so. You mentioned um, what you had to do in order to join the NATO. This this road, this uh, way of accession was uh, quite long for Northern Macedonia. For NATO. We have been, I think, the, the longest standing with that status, within, speaking about the NATO history. Since 1949, when that alliance was established, no one was waited, has waited longer than, than Macedonia. Um, we are not to be praised, and the Europeans as well, speaking about uh, our ambitions for joining the European Union as well. Up to now, we are 18, with 18 years with the status of a candidate. But speaking about NATO, the main problem was not that the lacking of the military reforms, but that long-standing uh, dispute over our name with our neighbor Greece, our neighbor on the south. And when we have finally resolved that with the so-called PRESPA agreement in 2018, it was only a matter of technicality, so to say, to enter the alliance. Then, uh, despite the fact that that was the COVID period, uh, then relatively, relatively quickly, approximately between 12 and 14 months, all other NATO allies and permanent members at that time have ratified the accession protocol and became the formal member of the alliance in March 2020. And uh, is there a strong support for NATO in Macedonian society? It is, yes, it is. We are still in the, in the, in the high 17s or 80s percent in favor of NATO membership. Uh, these numbers are, are a bit increased in the meantime since the war in Ukraine started because the people are, you know, whenever you're entering NATO, all the benefits are not so tangible. Uh, and in comparison with the membership in the European Union, and when you are entering European Union, you have an access to these structural cohesion funds, uh, funds of solidarity. But with NATO, because of the different type of organization, it's, com- it's uh, completely different. And people have not been aware about the, what really, what really, we are getting, in essence, by being there. But now with this war, um, for the first time after many decades in, on the European continent, all of them are seeing, are witnessing the real 
value of being the member of NATO because you know that famous Article Five of the of the basic documents of the NATO alliance said that attack on one is considered as an attack on, and that was the reason why U- Ukraine, among other things, on part of Russia was attacked because Ukraine Ukraine is still not the member of NATO, and uh, not, for example, the much smaller countries in the Baltic, for example, with million or two million people inhabitants. Because they are member of NATO and uh, uh, Russia is quite clear that uh, the attack by everybody or response by, by the whole alliance will, will follow. You mentioned the relations with Greece. And what's the current status of those relations? They're improving. They're improving on, on a rapid scale, especially in the economic terms speaking. We have doubled in the meantime the trade exchanges with our neighbor because uh, you know when the political atmosphere is easing and it's much more... It's not so difficult to to establish the better economic relations relationship as well. We have that they have the port of Thessaloniki, and that's our main entry and exit point. Whenever trying to to export many of our goods, we are producing. But apart from that, the main corridor, the so-called pan-European corridor, ten, is going from Greece through our country, through Serbia, and to the to the European Union, other member states. So. It's quite easy when you have relaxed political relationship. Before that was we have a good trade relations. There are many there were many Macedonian tourists going to for holidays in Greece, but there's a bit of a insecurity or a kind of a wondering on the part of the people whether we should go there, what's gonna be the response of the local people, especially in the northern part of Greece, but now these doubts are simply gone and, and no one is speaking about them. Last last year For the first time since our independence, I have paid an official visit uh, to the Greece, Greek president, and uh, that certainly opened the way for other, much more frequent contacts between the politicians on both sides of the border. And what about the Macedonian minority in Greece? Unfortunately, uh, you know, with the PRESPA agreement, the clear provision in that agreement was that we should, both sides, we should respect the international obligations. That means no meddling into the internal affairs of other state. So we are not authorized to to to, to do anything regarding the the people who feel as Macedonians and living in today's Greece and vice versa. They are not authorized to meddle in our internal affairs. We have a small minority of, of Greek people living in, in North Macedonia. So it's everything up to the international mechanisms, to the international organizations, European Union, United Nations. Several times in the past, United Nations had had appointed uh, the so-called special reporter to to report on the state of affairs in, in Greece regarding other minorities living there, but certainly not North not Macedonia. So we are sticking to the letter of that agreement, and our intention is not to meddle into the internal affairs of any other state, not only Greece, of course. You yourself here have a big minority, or should I say co-hosts of the country, the Albanians, and uh, the structure of North Macedonia is uh, quite extraordinary in this regard. Speaking honestly, there are many other countries in our vicinity which are ethnically and religiously heterogeneous. Uh, The latest uh, numbers from our census uh, from last year said that there are approximately a quarter of the population ethnic Albanians, but we have approximately 10% of others, non-Macedonians, non-Albanians. Macedonians are approximately 60%. We are facing that big problems for many other transition countries in transition. 
uh, from communism to capitalism than many people, especially young ones, are leaving the country for the for the better looking for the better economic chances to succeed. But despite of that, the right term, just to uh, slightly correct you, it's not no one is co-host in this country. And certainly we are, as Macedonian ethnic Macedonians, certainly not the host <laughs> in the country. The right term are the part of the people. People and the part of the people. So not national minorities, but not the hosts, certainly. We have a good and long uh, uh, history of, of cooperation between us. Then we have at least, we have seven people being mentioned in, the, in our constitution, in the preamble of the constitution. And we have Turks, we have Roma, we have Serbs, Vlachs, uh, Bosni Bosniaks. Bosniaks, plus Albanians and Macedonians, of course, and uh, we have the long history. We have been like that with that structure and that distribution of the population, even in the former Yugoslavia, before that. So that is the only way forward for the country, just to respect everybody living in the in the country and not dividing the people into the citizens of first or citizens of second category or third category. And since 2001 and that Ohrid framework agreement we have signed and now it is the part of our constitution, we are recording a, a good sentence in this regard. So no any more um, on a large scale uh, inter-ethnic conflicts or, or even the skirmishes from times to times. There are certainly few of them, especially among the young population, but inter-ethnic relations have much, much been relaxed in the meantime than since 2001. Before that, in the first decade of our independence, we have been dealing, I would like to say, on a daily, but on a weekly or monthly basis with that kind of provocations, problems. And uh, you, even we have the victims in from times to times on each or the other side. So, but after 2001, we have found a good model for cohabitation co for between Macedonians and Albanians and with the others, of course. And that is paying, that is paying, uh, that that's paying respect. We are we are we are seeing good effects of that of that agreement. But there is one minority which is not mentioned in constitution, and they certainly would like to be the Bulgarians. We have no problems to to put Bulgarians in the preamble of the constitution and a few others, the Montenegrins, Croats. We have a small number of Croats and Montenegrins living here in the country. Egyptians. You name it. And that's not something unusual. In, For example, in the Croatian constitution, there are more than 20, they said, national minorities being mentioned. Uh, in neighboring Serbia, they have uh, the so-called Council of National Minorities as, a, as, a, as, a, as an official body being sponsored by the state budget and being supported by state budgets. So we do not have the promise to put Bulgarians in, but unfortunately, in the past two years, then witnessing this uh, unreasonable Bulgarian blockade for our EU membership, then many people, especially the people in the Macedonian opposition, started to use, uh, or at times even misuse that issue and politicize that issue. And so at present, it's not possible at present, it's not possible with the numbers we have in the parliament to change, to amend the constitution and putting Bulgarians in because we do need two thirds of the, uh, of the majority out of 120 MPs in the parliament and 80, uh, should vote for that constitutional changes, but at present, we don't, the current governmental coalition is not capable to assemble that number of votes. Maybe in the months to come, something will change on the oppositional side, but having in mind that we are only a year and a half from the next parliamentary elections, it's very unlikely that we will assemble uh, two-thirds of majority, because obviously that on the part of the Macedonian opposition, there are people who would like to use that as the maybe as one of the electoral issues or electoral to campaign on that during the next elections.
yesterday's election in Bulgaria were not so successful. Uh, probably there will be another one in February. Mm, do you hope there is a chance that the government will change in Bulgaria and it will be possible to get to this agreement? It, it is still not clear whether there are going to be a, a majority to form, in the, to, to form the government in Bulgaria because uh, our numbers are... It's not so clear then. There is, is the possibility to anyhow to see the government in the next few months in Bulgaria. If not, they were, they're, they're going to head towards the new elections, of course. What is important, what is important to say is that I have been the day before yesterday in Bulgaria, paying the visit to Sofia for the first time in the fourth year of my term, out of known reasons, and otherwise I should be there in the very first months of my mandate. But and have a, a separate meeting with President Radev. I urge him, regardless of the election results, because he is the he is the one who is forming the caretaker government, and then and he was cited by the by six seven ministers of that caretaker government. And if there is no a political government, then he will be the one who will form again the caretaker government for the next three to four months to to calm down the tensions and to take care about the political rhetoric. I am not advising only him to do that, or other political politicians in Bulgaria, but everybody on both sides, on both sides in both countries, because you know, people, ordinary people are strictly following what we are gonna say, what we are saying, what we are speaking. And if we are going forward with the inflammatory rhetoric on both sides, and that was unfortunately the case much more on the Bulgarian side in the past two years, with a formal blockade being imposed on us in Brussels. So that, that, is, that is very visible on the streets in Skopje and other towns in Macedonia. So he agreed in principle that it's now the time to change the political agenda and not to speak only about history, only about that dispute, but we have now the European negotiating framework. That's not anymore the pure bilateral dispute and talking because we have commission of historians and we have working groups from both foreign ministries and talking to each other in the past two, two and a half years, now we have the European framework. Let's be within that European framework and speak about the European principles and values. Not to speak about what ethnicity was some national hero from the 10th or 15th century, because the people have not selected or picked up and not voted for us in the elections in both countries to go back to history, but think about the present time and, uh, and uh, generations who are living at this moment in both countries and to make the better future for them, certainly. We've been to Czech Republic, to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and apparently Czech presidency is very supportive of the Western Balkans joining the EU. Uh, Czech presidency was very instrumental, very supportive. Uh, I, can, I can say the same for the French presidency before, because in that period of the time, in the six months, in essence, the breakthrough happened between North Macedonia and Bulgaria. But uh, what is the most important for our people, for everybody else in Europe to understand is that whoever is holding the rotating presidency of the EU can only be a kind of a logistical support. If there is no a clear political will on both sides, in this, in this case between Macedonia and Bulgaria, there is no chance that anybody holding the rotating presidency at that moment will make a breakthrough without the political will in Skopje and Sofia. So the most important is goodwill 
in Skopje and Sofia, goodwill on the part of the political elites leading the country at that moment, in both countries in that moment. And of course, uh, a, a presidency being, being uh, taken by the country at that period with, uh, with the clear priorities on the region, you know. Honestly speaking, speaking about the all six Western Balkan countries, uh, it was not always the case. Then the European Union has not always been fully focused on the, the Western Balkan and the state of affairs at present is like this. Then um, Serbia and Montenegro are negotiating for 10 years and no breakthrough and no end of that process in the site. And uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Republic of Kosovo are, are completely forgotten. So they are not even in any, not even at the, at the bottom of that. European list of priorities, European Union list of priorities. So it should change. It should change because this region should not be taken into account or paying attention to this region only when there is a big migration crisis or kind of a kind of inter-ethnic clashes or tensions like we have witnessed recently on the north of Kosovo or from times to times hearing that rhetoric coming from the Republic of Srpska. Let's change the topic a bit. What are the relations of Northern Macedonia, North Macedonia with Poland? Uh, I can tell you that uh, at least uh, since the period of time, the president, uh, I think that the level of cooperation was, was taken on the on unprecedented level up. Not seen before, but it is true to say that it's a matter of fact as well that with Poland, we have the exceptionally good political relations since our independence. Uh, I cannot invoke any single sentence, any single being set against our Euro-Atlantic Euro integrations on the part of any of the political uh, politicians in Poland, regardless of the, of the government being in place, being in power in Warsaw. And uh, no, any single dispute between two countries uh, in, in the meantime, in the past 31 years since our independence. You know, we have the, the history of good relationship with Poland even in the time, in the period when, when we have been the part of the former Yugoslavia. And after the World War II, you're a young one, but <laughs> I was, I'm a bit older, but I'm not witnessing that period of time, but everybody knows history, history has confirmed that there have been a lot of the people escaping the civil war in Greece and finding a refuge in, in Poland at that period of time. That was that civil war in Greece was in 1946, 1949, and thousands and thousands of the Macedonian children escaping the civil war uh, have been located in Poland, and for many of them, then even then, their generations, their offsprings are still living in, in your country. And that's certainly a, a move or the behavior on, on part of the Poland, which will never be forget, forgotten by, by, by ethnic Macedonians. So, we have been very grateful for that. And, but beside of that, uh, we have always been in kind of a, maybe because the ethnic Macedonians are part of the Slavic people as Poland are, are and uh, Polish people are, and that was probably another reason why we have been so close, maybe in mentality. We are not far away from the languages we are speaking. So more or less the same group of languages, Macedonian and Polish one. So, and, but in the, in the modern times, we have seen a, establishing a good political cooperation, and it's going to stay like that. In the economic terms, if you ask me about the economic uh, turnout or economic uh, and trade exchanges, there is, a, there is a huge disbalance, but that's, I would say, a normal one, because Poland, Polish economy is one of the biggest in the European Union. Poland has nearly 40 million people, so we, are 20, we have 20 times less, times less, and... Uh, but we are satisfied. We are satisfied. Uh, the latest statistics I saw is that in the past 
few quarters, we are nearing the, the pre-pandemic level, and that was in both directions, nearly 400 million euros. There are currently many crises, many problems in whole Europe, but uh, also in North Macedonia. Unemployment, economic crisis, uh, inflation, energy prices, how Macedonia deal with it? In, in a very difficult manner. The, the, you know, our resources are very scarce and uh, what is the most worrying for us is that we're a very highly energy dependent country. And uh, the, the mostly dependent we are on electricity. We are not a big users of gas, but we do need the gas here and there, but electricity is a big concern for us. And that was the reason why I was speaking with President Radev even during this latest uh, summit uh, for the opening of that connector, uh, gas interconnector between Bulgaria and Greece, because Bulgaria is one of the rare, uh, very rare countries in, a, in the wider region with the surpluses in, the, in that field, because they have the nuclear plant, the Kozlovi, on the Bulgarian-Romanian border on Danube River. Uh, of course, we are speaking with many other countries, speaking with Serbia as our neighbor. They have some surpluses of gas. Uh, today or tomorrow, I, I should speak... Uh, on phone with uh, my colleague Erdogan from Turkey to ask for help from that side as well. But I can tell you that two days ago in Sofia, I have a, a meeting with Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, and asking for for the whole region, not only for North Macedonia, but the whole region of Western Balkan to enter into that solidarity funds of the European Union. Something similar as it was for the COVID crisis with the distribution of the vaccines. So uh, to be formally and de facto the part of that common European energy market. And if there are any surpluses of any of these uh, energy resources uh, throughout the European Union from any member state, uh, we to be, not to be forgotten, simply not. Uh, we're going to ask for guests, for everything else, from Azerbaijan, from everybody less exception, except from, from Russia. But European Union had that, had that common uh, uh, market in energy and it's good for all six Western Balkan countries to be to be part of that still waiting to be the members of the Union not to be forgotten and to as a kind of European solidarity the, on 6th of this month I think in Prague is going to be the first inaugural meeting of the new format of cooperation between the members and non-members of the European Union the so-called European political community one of the the main topics as announced is going to be the the helping each other during this huge energy crisis. Uh, winter is coming, that crisis is going to be even bigger. You know, whenever speaking with our people about the benefits, why we should be in the European Union, it's, it's always good to have something in your hand, something tangible, something visible, uh, something concrete, not only rhetoric. We would like to be there and speaking about, that's good to speak about democratic values, of course, that's the foundation of everything else. But people from time to time, especially being for so long in the anteroom of the European integrations, are asking for the concrete uh, effects of that being the candidate or negotiating as we are negotiating right now. This is the ideal opportunity to, to show a solidarity with the non-members or the countries which might wait for a few more years to become the full-fledged member of, the, of that union. The energy crisis is, uh, in a big part, the fault of Russia. Do you think that Russia still deserves its position in the Security Council of the, of the United Nations? And is the United Nations even still an effective organization? Well, the second one, the second question has been a hotly debated issues for decades. I would like to say since the foundation of that organization in 1945, 
But, you know, at the end of the day, is always the argument which is prevailing is that it's good to have that forum, at least for discussion, than to shoot to each other. So, and many other people will say how many conflicts have been prevented by the UN. Well, maybe not too many, or maybe some on the minor scale and in some uh, poorer countries or countries on the periphery of the world, so to say. But anyhow, it's always better to have something when we can meet each other than to, 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 to shoot at each other and to, to, to hate each other and not to know the arguments on the other side. Uh, I saw that probably you were referring to the one of the people who have suggested that kind of an outcome for Russia not to become the member of the, or at least to be suspended from the membership in the Security Council is Mr. Charles Michel from President of the European Council. I certainly do agree with, with his proposal and his arguments. The country which is violating the basic documents of that organization is, is impossible to become, even in the security member, even to be the, become the member of that organization with all the rights and obligations uh, belonging to each member of, of the UN, and not to speak about the Security Council. But what is wrong with the Security Council is that the Charter of the UN is saying that for uh, even for the agenda, for the most benign issues, of that for all the issues on the agenda of, of, of the United Nations, all five members of the United Security Council, should, UN Security Council, should agree on. So it's not possible to, to suspend the membership of the Security Council if not all five of these members of the UN Security Council will agree on that. So that is mission impossible, obviously, regarding or following the rules of the UN, but as a political issue, of course, then with the gross violations of the UN basic principles and basic documents, uh, at least the, the 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 moral position of the Russian Federation within that organization is nowhere to be seen anymore. When will the war in Ukraine end, and what will be its outcome? I would like I would like to to meet anybody in the world, of, starting from the biggest and most authoritative uh, military experts, who will know that the answer to that. Uh, many people, the, the the biggest experts in the field, agree that the war will will go on and on. And no one knows what does that mean. And that it seems to me that uh, following the latest moves by by Putin, that it's possible that war to to go well into the next year. But it seems to me that the biggest question and the much much more important question than than the one you have put forward is whether that guy is really ready or seriously thinking to use the tactical nuclear weapons. So uh, otherwise. Uh, I would like war to be over today, not tomorrow. Just to, to, to that suffering of the Ukrainian people to, to, to stop. But if the war is, go, if war is going on and on, it's obvious that Putin cannot win that war. It's absolutely obvious in the, in the military terms, not only in the diplomatic and political terms, because he has been condemned from the very beginning of that war in March, that was 141 member states of the United Nations voting against that, that move of Russia invading Ukraine. But this is a very important, very dangerous uh, move if he's, he's going to stick to his words and to his threats, as he's saying in the last few weeks. You know, you're, you're, we're witnessing that uh, since the situation on the ground is quite poor for him and for his army, then he's simply heating up the rhetoric and leveling up the rhetoric. No one knows what that guy is capable of doing. I'm, I'm afraid to say that I cannot see anybody else in the world who can speak with him and persuade him, persuade him to be more rational. Uh, if you take into account that he was not rational at the very first moment invading Ukraine, 
So why to expect that guy to be more rational now when the situation on the ground is going contrary to his original plans? Last question. What does it mean for you to be a Macedonian? No, that is, uh, it means a lot for everybody, not for myself. It means a lot because that is the identity of our predecessors. And then the basic identity markers of the Macedonian nations are important whenever you're going to be in the world. Maybe not living in Macedonia, living you know, whenever in the, you know, each of the continents of this planet. It's a very important part of our overall identity apart from being a father, or being a parent, uh, being a husband, uh, apart from being the president of the country. So being a Macedonian is uh, simply an inseparable part of my identity, or of each Macedonian. We have Macedonians living in the fourth generation, fifth generation in Australia, for example, in New Zealand. Uh, anyhow, they're fighting a lot f- to preserve their identity. You know a bit about that, <laughs> being a Polish, because Poland has been the subject of heavy pressure by the biggest neighbors throughout your history, and you have never been given, given up on your identity. That We are in a similar situation. We are not the smallest country in the region, being always negated by bigger neighbors. Even in the 21st century, to be honest, in the latest blockade by Bulgaria in the past two years, have been in a part based on that, because there have been demands put forward in Brussels, not in some private conversations, that allegedly the Macedonian language is the dialect of Bulgaria, and that we have been invented as Macedonian people by the end of the World War II by some mysterious decree by the then Marshal <laughs> Tito, that kind of a stuff. And I can tell you that that identity politics is coming back on, a, on, a, uh, on coming back in, in Macedonia because of these negations uh, in these modern times, when no one expected that. Uh, but that is the issue not only within the Bulgarian context or context of the European integration, that's the issue we wouldn't like to discuss with anybody else. Then, uh, not as, a, as the president or as the minister of foreign affairs or the, the, the prime minister or as an ordinary citizen on the street. That's simply out of any discussion, any debate. Is there anything you would like to say to our listeners? Just to, to greet all of them, to, to greet all of them and to, to send best regards to the the whole of the Polish people, and to announce that uh, we have agreed with my uh, Polish colleague and friend, uh, President Duda, to, to visit Poland on 24th of October this month. And that's going to be without precedent in my, in my term. I have been in the official visit to Poland in 2020, and uh, I have invited President Duda, and he was in November last year in the official visit to, to North Macedonia. Now I'm going to be again in the second official visit to Poland. So that never happened with any other country on the European with any other country in the world. So that means something, something I mean for the Macedonian-Polish friendship. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you.